0: You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. The Trek Files, Season 7, Episode 21, The Cage Call Sheet, December 4th, 1964. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host... Dr. Trek, Larry Nemacek. Oh, welcome back, Star Trek fans. Hey, all you fans of the Trek files, yes trek files spelled with an F, and I do include all you canonistas, as I say that lovingly, and tech heads. We've got a wonderful show today. Every Every time November, December rolls around that time of year, I get in kind of a cage mood, and today we're definitely going to be back with the cage. We've got an excellent guest for you today, and as usual, of course, we've got our documents right out of Gene's files. That's why we call it the Trek Files. So, Take a look there at our Facebook page. You should know the routine by now. We've got some excellent documents, some fun stuff there for you to see. Facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Meanwhile, listen. Take a listen to this audio sample and then stick around. I'll be right back with this week's guest. Friday, December 4th, 1964. The Menagerie. Exterior, Orion Courtyard. One, Jeffrey Hutter, Captain. Makeup, 7.15 a.m., set call, 8 a.m. Two, Susan Oliver, Vina. Makeup, 6.15 a.m., set call, 8 a.m. Three female slaves, 6.15 a.m., breakfast furnished. One male slave, 6.30 a.m., breakfast furnished. Note, positively no cars beyond stage 11 park in designated areas only Wow trecophiles now I want to know who the Orion male slave was Wow all right there we go. <laughs> Call sheets from the cage. Call sheets from the cage. And of course, when we think of the cage, Captain Pike, number one, the original setup of the Enterprise crew of the 2250s that we're about to see play out again in Strange New Worlds. But back in the day, um, maybe one of the most notorious, maybe one of the most infamous roles for a a prolific guest actress of the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, Susan Oliver, and uh, a documentary called The Green Girl that uh, is out there for you to find now. I'm so thrilled to have our guest today to talk about Susan Oliver, uh, George Pappy. George, so glad to have you here on The Trek Files. I wanna welcome you in, and thanks for sharing some time with us to talk about um, Susan Oliver. I know she's taken up some time in your life. Absolutely,
1: thank you for having me. It's always an honor to talk about Susan Oliver. Yes, she was
0: pretty amazing. This is so much fun because we we're going back through the files. We found some papers about Susan that we're going to talk about here uh, today. But um, she was such an amazing person. Star Trek fans know her obviously as Vena. Sometimes we even forget that she was more than the Green Girl. She was a whole range of characters, which was the whole point of the Cage was pulling pulling different uh, you know personality types out of the dark recesses of of uh, Christopher Pike's mind. There, thanks to Telosians. But tell us a little bit about Susan Oliver. And she had a fascinating life and also, in the end, kind of a, a, a tragic life at the end. But up until the point of Star Trek, she had she had an amazing career.
1: She really did. Um, she had come out of the neighborhood playhouse in New York mm-hmm. City studying under Sanford Meisner, as so many others had, including Joanne Woodward you know big names and and she kind of came up through the golden age of television shows like goodyear playhouse studio one camera three all those things like the kaiser aluminum hour you us steel Hour. a lot of those were
0: live dramas yeah right?
1: playhouse mm-hmm. 90 and and um and then you know as stuff started to be filmed more and more she got into that uh, it's funny um, that Jean pitched the Star Trek as Wagon Train to the Stars because Susan was on four of those over the years. I mean, she was that kind of a guest star. It, it is no surprise that by 1964, it's, it's no exaggeration to say, by 1964, she was the go-to female guest star on television at that time, which makes perfect sense that Jean would approach her for something like Bina, which was five roles. Um, i've heard in fact in my documentary it's described um she was kind of like a chameleon which made her so good for television she could disappear into any role any time and when there are five of them you need to disappear into that's perfect
0: Well, I'm looking at her life dates. So she, at the time they filmed The Cage in 64, late 1964, she was uh, 32, almost 33, I guess a couple months away from turning 33. And she'd been at this for several years. But yeah, she played. One thing about your documentary, The Green Girl, which is still out there, people can find it, is you've got so many clips from different roles. She's playing everything from almost teenagers to to psychotics, to scheming, to totally innocent girl-next-door types. I mean, she's all over the map and did it for years and years and years. Um, and the fact that they found her for The Cage is kind of amazing. But the other amazing thing is, and I, what I love about our documents this week, is we include a couple here. We've got her Orion Day. <laughs> I call it the Orion Day of the infamous dance. And she had a lot to say. She wrote her memoirs, and you cover it in her documentary. But also the fact that there are two dance rehearsal days even the day they're shooting, uh, on the Monday they start to the shoot. You know, with Captain Pike and Doctor Boyce in his quarters, she's over on stage fourteen, a couple of stages away, rehearsing for the second day. They'd started on Friday, and that's kind of fascinating too, because she wasn't a trained dancer, was she?
1: Not at all. Which is funny because Gene indicated she was in his quote short list, which wasn't all that short. He had a lot of actresses' names on it, and she was one of them. But she was one of the ones along with. Uh, Yvonne Craig, who actually was a trained dancer Mm -hmm. and a few others, but said, oh, she's a trained dancer. There seems to be, but Gene may have had some bias towards wanting her because he'd been writing in television for a long time. She'd done things he'd written before. I think he was very familiar with her. And she says that he pitched her pretty hard sometime in the summer, late summer of 64, they ran into each other at the Culver City Studios. And, you know, at the end, he had to get Oscar Katz to pitch her really hard to take it because she Mm -hmm. wanted to go do something else. Um, Fly. In fact, she had just taken up flying and wanted to go on a flying trip. And they promised her it would be a quick, easy shoot, which it turned out it wasn't because of all the makeup and things (laughs) like that. but yeah, they really wanted her, so I think he may have exaggerated her dancing skills. But no, she didn't really know how to dance at all, and had to get specially trained for it. But she obviously rose to the occasion.
0: Well, in the in the best traditions of, of the acting profession, when the casting folks say, uh, "Can you dance? Can you scuba dive? Can you ride a horse?" you say, "Of course I can!" and then you race out and you take crash course in scuba diving, or horseback riding, or dance, as it you know. And this is a free for. It's not like she's having to do ballroom dance or something. It's it's freeform folk. Dancing there, kind of. A, but it's interesting. Who was on the short list you mentioned? Oh, uh, well, Yvonne Craig for sure was. Believe it. That's or what not. I wanted to say. Yvonne Craig yeah. later on plays the other Orion that we see, Marta, yeah. in third season, and um, has a dance herself too. So before she goes on to play, you know, bad girl with Batman. Are you
1: interested in hearing this this list? I oh sure, it right sure. Here. sure. This is in the book um, Star Trek Creator by David Alexander. According to him. Um, among, among the names were Anne Francis, Stella Stevens Barbara Eden, Jean Fonda Piper Laurie Yvette Mimeu, uh Carol Lawrence, Diane Cannon Suzanne Plachet, Yvonne Craig and Jean Seberg So wow. there was quite a list
0: <laughs> Of course as we know with casting if that was Jean's wish list that could be a long way from the wish list and Absolutely. the reality of who they were actually going to get in the studio She's working so much in TV because of her run-in she had as her movie career took off, right? Can you can you tell yeah. us about that?
1: She had a very unusually successful early arrival in Hollywood. She, all those early shows she was doing in New York, for the most part, she shows up here in '57, and within weeks is cast in kind of a, a Warner Brothers B movie as a. I, I, uh, girls' reform school kind of movie. <laughs> but she's an instant starlet. She's getting all the press and showing up in all the gossip columns, Hedda Hopper, Luella Parsons. And then they don't use her a lot. So she goes back to New, to New York to do some theater. She replaces Mary Ure and Look Back in Anger, which was kind of a big deal on Broadway. And then stays to do some other stuff. And then they try to call her back on a Warner's contract like nine months later. She'd literally been just lingering on a contract for nine months. To do up periscope with james garner which he certainly had a very low opinion of and apparently she did too when she read the script so she broke her contract and the word was that jack warner was a pretty vindictive guy and he let her mm-hmm. out of it but she probably was blacklisted in the sense that she wasn't going to be a contract player and you really needed to be at that time to get into movies
0: in the late 50s early 60s but, but she did have some, some other movie roles. She had some great screen time with, uh, with what, Elizabeth Taylor? One, uh, yeah, she definitely
1: did. She, in uh, Butterfield 8 and the year mm-hmm. before that, the Gene Krupa story. But none of these movies ended up being huge successes. They were one-offs. Uh but she right. wasn't going to get pushed for... And they weren't leads that she had either. She wasn't right. going to get pushed right. for leads the way... But I mean,
0: she had she had visibility, but then Jack Warner and the studio weren't doing anything with her. And that's why she no. was kind of chomping at the bit there to get out and do something. That's and then right. they turn around and, and blacklist her. So TV is where, you know, and the, the wall between movies and TV is so strong that uh, it was it was a come down for her to have had this promising movie career. So, ha-ha, take that, young lady. But then she shows them... Yeah. She has this incredible career. No, she becomes uh, yeah. this
1: incredible. And like I said, she was the natural choice for Veena. It's why there's, if your listeners, if you're curious, go on eBay and look her name up. And you'll find page after page after page of photos of her. The reason is, not only was she a prolific guest star of television of that era, she was the kind of guest star you advertised it with a photo in the paper <laughs> that she was mm-hmm. going to be on. Um, she was that big of a deal.
0: With guest star Susan Oliver. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> well, so you, Oscar Katz, we mentioned. Oscar Katz was nominally Herb Solo's boss at, at, at Desilu, who they brought in to help be the young spark plug to sell Star Trek and Mission Impossible and all that. But Oscar Katz had been the one that really, you were talking, reeled her in. She was thinking, oh, this part, this role, it's sci-fi. And he promised her the moon. Right. It'll be easy.
1: Yeah, it'll be easy. You'll be in and out. And and yeah, especially I think there's those famous photos of her holding the sign, Oscar, where are you when she's the old woman? Um, Because that apparently was excruciating because it was that time lapse thing as she, the the illusion Mm -hmm. strips away and, and she slowly distorts into what she really looks like. And yeah, I don't think well, she signed on for that. <laughs> they did the mind. old age
0: makeup, the green makeup for the Orion girl and all the different get ups. Yeah, that, that she's the one I think that instigated the Oscar Where Are You sign that then got passed around right. and had a life of its own. Yeah. We've seen we've seen that in some of our other episodes even. So Oscar was uh missing in action when it came time for her to call and complain or call into Well, <laughs>
1: she was on the set complaining and they finally yeah. called and you got to get down here and talk to her, but he didn't want to come because she was apparently pretty upset. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that is the story of the Oscar where are you? Right, sign. Right. Yeah. What what was her what was her uh, Reaction. She wrote her memoirs later. Did she have a sense of the cage? I mean, here's a she's in a pilot. She does all this. And then it's an infamous story of the pilot doesn't sell. Oh, well, got to go off and, you know, it's one in a million things that I did that aren't going to be seen. And she's off and back with the rest of her career. When did she get a sense at the time or later of what she had done?
1: I don't think she had any sense at the time. Why would she? It was, I mean, especially at the pace she worked all the time, literally. Mm -hmm. It was just something she did for two weeks that never never saw air time uh i think she might have known it, it got airtime when they recut it into the right. it would have rebooted series but still it was no big deal especially she had other things going on she the, that year right around that time she was very big on peyton plays so it, i don't think she got any sense that it was important until the reruns really started happening in the 70s because and i'm sure you remember this i sure do that when that two-part mm-hmm. episode would air um the one where they flash back 13 years ago when Spock was, right. you know, they
0: had just a, lowly, a great way to retcon yeah. in your first pilot, by the way. Exactly. That's how they that showed brilliant. the way.
1: But um, but that was a big deal. That was an advertisable two part episode in what was otherwise just reruns of Star Trek five days a week. It was noteworthy. And so I think she got invited to like the one convention she probably showed up to or one of the very few in 76 in New York. We had mm-hmm. a guy in my documentary who, he said she was very bemused and a bit surprised by all the big deal people
0: were making about it. But I think by that point, sometime out of the mid 70s, she kind of got it. Well, listen, she, I think Star Trek, fans, even if they know that you, if you're watching one of the one of the retro TV channels and you see her popping up on so many series, you can look at her IMDb and see where all she was. But still, that doesn't really tell the whole scope of her life. And what's amazing is we've even figured out a way that she circled back to Star Trek. Now, I, I this, is, this is not the end of her life here. Star Trek was not the end-all be-all. And I know she, until the end of her days, she, she I think she had a fondness for her days, right? Um, the, the Vena and the character. Oh, yeah, I think so. We're almost out of time here, but that's a whole other chapter of her life. And we've come across some documents that tie her back to Star Trek, even in later generations. So, George, I, uh, we, <laughs> I'd i love to have you come back, if you can, and let's talk about Susan Oliver, part two.
1: Absolutely.
0: That <laughs> would be my pleasure. Thank you. Her, <laughs> very much, very much. Her post-Vena her post, uh, days. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Now, all of our documents and your chance to comment, as always, are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47, uh, that's me, at larrynemachek.com. That's where you can link in for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts, too, right there at our Tee Public shop. Struck well, everybody.
1: This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.